Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, if anybody can move up toward the front or at least in from the aisle so you can leave more seats for the other people who come in late. Seems like some people always end up crowded into the back, unable to come in. So if anybody can move up here a little bit more toward the front, fill up some of the front and move in from the sides, that'd be great. Sorry, it's a little hot in here. I don't know what to do, but uh, I'm suffering with you, believe me. <laughs> All right, well, let's get started with prayer. Father in heaven, we're just asking for you to fill us with a sense of your love for us. I pray that you will speak through my voice to every heart here. You know the hurts going on in our lives, Lord. You know the pain, the questions. You know the struggles that we're facing. And I know you have the solution to every single one of them, and you want to communicate it to us. Help us to understand your word in a new way this morning. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I love me, I love me not. This is part two. We just talked about, for those of you who are uh, new here, we just talked about what's wrong with the world's way of measuring your worth. And I want to share a little bit of my own personal story, just like I did uh, in the last session. You know, when I hear people talk about, oh, I just wish I could go back and be young again, I just, I'm like, whatever. I don't know what they're talking about because you couldn't pay me enough money to go back to being 16. It was no picnic. But, um, you know, at that time in my life, I just really hated who I was. I hated how I looked. You know, I wore size large cream-colored turtlenecks all the time. And I, I thought I was a size large. It was actually many years before I discovered I was a size small. At that time, I was a... Uh, about 10 pounds or 15 pounds less than I am now. So at 5'7", and let's see, I was 115 or 120 pounds at the time. There wasn't a whole lot to me, but I thought that I was huge. I just felt like this huge buffalo, this camel of a girl that stomped around, tripping over her feet. I, I just, I totally hated what I looked like, how I felt. I liked when I started being into the more conservative world because Everybody wore skirts down to their ankles, and at least nobody could see my ugly legs, my ugly body. I didn't like who I was. And one of the things that I hated the most about myself was how tall I was. I just felt I was so tall. I remember when I was 20 years old, I was colportering my first summer canvassing program, and I was thinking, as I often did, how much I hated my body, how much I hated what I looked like, and how tall I was. And I started thinking, I wonder what would be the ideal height so I thought, let me just look around and find somebody who's their ideal height. I looked around and I saw another girl and just thought, you know, that's about the right height. I wish I were the size she is. She looked just about, you know, perfect. And then, of course, I was curious. I wonder how much taller than the ideal I am, you know? So I went over and I stood next to her, and we were the same height. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was just incredible to me. You know, what that teaches me is that perception is not always reality. I'm not going to promise you that if you don't like the way you look that you're going to someday find out that you're just perfect. But I learned something more important, that I had been beating myself all the time over how I hated the way God had made me. And I actually was completely misperceiving how God had made me. Not that, you know, it really mattered what I looked like, because what we look like really isn't a measure of our worth. But at that time, I had this consuming desire to be different. Whatever it was, different than me. I used to think, what if I were just going to, you know, put my name into a Dropbox and say, okay, choose one out, and whatever you get, you're going to get this whole new body and face. Would I be willing to just take the risk and see if I could get something better than what I have? I'd think about these things. I don't know why. You know, when you're a teenager, you think about dumb things sometimes. That's what I thought about. At this time in my life, I really disliked who I was. And I was resentful toward God sometimes, too. Why did you make me so ugly? Why did you make me this and that and oily hair and, you know, too, too much acne? And everything was just always wrong, wrong, wrong with me. You know, the devil lies to us. Sometimes uh, the difference between men, women and men is the way that we lie to ourselves. <laughs> women see themselves <laughs> in, with their perceptions distorted, and men sometimes do too. <laughs> Whether we're lying to ourselves with uh, 
getting higher self-esteem than we should or a lower self-esteem than we should, it's all ultimately the wrong way to measure ourselves. In our last seminar, we talked about the difference between worldly self-esteem and godly self-worth. The truth is, worldly self-esteem is a sandy foundation of evaluating human worth by relationships, talents, accomplishments, or other worldly measurements apart from the love of God. Worldly self-esteem is this false gospel that'll tell you, yeah, you can really be worth a lot if you'll just succeed, if you'll just become popular enough, if you'll just whatever. But biblical self-worth is a rock-solid foundation built on the unconditional love of God as expressed in creation and redemption. The love of God tells me that there is nothing I can do that can make him love me more. There's nothing I can do that can increase my worth in his eyes. And there's nothing I can do that can make me worth less. There's nothing that I can do that can reduce my worth in his eyes. This concept is throughout the Bible, and yet so few Christians really have internalized it. We just don't believe that. Instead, we build our self-worth on what other people think of us. You know, and I know so many people that they're like squirrels in the woods. They won't leave this relationship until they're pretty sure they can make it to the next one. Take a flying leap and, you know, they're still letting go of this one when they're hanging on to that one. You know, the, the proverbial text message breakup. I found somebody better. So long, sucker. It, it's just, it's a prevailing culture right now because we have this craving, this need for affection from other people. And it comes from not building a deep sense of identity and the love of God for us. When I see people who are in addictive relationships, I know what's going on behind the scenes. I know that what's happening is they're sub supplementing, substituting because God feels so far away. They need somebody to make them feel good about themselves now, here. I'll get to God. Maybe this, you know, this will be something that'll help me. He seems so spiritual. She seems so godly. This will help me get closer to God. But self is still on the throne of our hearts. And when self is on the throne of our hearts, we're very poor judges of what choices we should make in life. I've, I've known people who they swing from relationship to relationship or from sport to sport or from one thing to another. I've got to be good at something. They'll build their self-worth on their grades for a while, or then that they're good at something, or then they'll try to be really popular, or then they'll get into, I'm really outdoorsy, or then they'll get into, I'm just a really artsy person. But all of the things that they're going to are ultimately, they get tired of it. It's empty because it's not really a foundation for godly self-worth. They need to understand their worth in the light of the cross so that they're not measuring it by these things that are under the sun as Solomon said. And when people get into codependent relationships, you know, you hear about codependency. It's, it's the N-word right now in psychology. Codependency is just old-fashioned idolatry. It's when somebody or something is more important to you than God. And when that somebody or something is more important to you than God, it's never really that somebody or something. It's always self that's on the throne of the heart. And what that person does for me makes me feel so good about myself. The Bible has a totally different way of us building our self-worth. And if you were to make a list of the things that the devil tells you, you know, I think all of us have lies that the devil tells to us sometimes. You know, you never do anything right. That was a big one for me. You're so stupid. You're a stupid idiot. You do everything wrong. Nobody likes you. You'll never be... Well, all those things, they were lies. They were lies of the devil. But what I needed was to apply the truths of the word of God. I would challenge you to sit down prayerfully in your devotional time and write out the lies that the devil tells to you. What thoughts cross your mind habitually when you hit a low point? What is it that comes to you? What do you start thinking? I always, nobody ever, why? You know, those things that come to you. What are those? What are those lies of the devil that hit you that say you're worth nothing? Nobody could ever love somebody like me. Whatever it is that comes to you, challenge those using scripture. Write down the lies the devil tells you and then write down beside them what the Bible says to combat those lies. And then when the lie comes to your mind, don't try fighting it. No, I'm not going to think those things. I'm going to go out and exercise. I'm going to go eat a gallon of ice cream, call a friend. You know, 
When you're struggling, don't open your cell phone. Open the word. Let God speak to you. When God speaks to you, he says things like this in John 1, 12. You are a child of God. You are bought with an infinite price, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You are adopted by God. Some of you have come from less than beautiful families. Your backgrounds can be messed up, and the devil will tell you, you'll never have what other people have. You could never have a mom or a dad who, whatever, whatever it is that you're missing, the devil will tell you it's hopeless for you. You can never be. You can never get. But those are lies because you're adopted by God. You are complete in Christ, according to Colossians 2.10. You're free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1 and 2. So many times I've talked to people who feel condemned because they've gotten entangled in a sexual addiction or in a, a problem relationship or something that makes them feel worthless. They feel unlovable. I lost my job. I'm not supporting my family. So they become consumed by video games or something like that. Whatever it is that they're turning to instead of Christ, then they feel this condemnation. But you can be free from condemnation when you give that to Christ and you let him make you into a new creature. You are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made in the past. Even if you've lost your virginity, those are tragic mistakes, but you're still the temple of God. He can still create in you a holy and beautiful place for him to dwell. You are a co-worker with Christ, 2 Corinthians 6.1. You are chosen by God to bear his fruit, John 15.16. The Bible is packed with promises like these. This is just a, a tiny taste of what I'm talking about. When the devil lies to you about your worth and says you are not worth what other people are worth, you are not as beautiful as, you are not whatever it is, go to the word of God. This is the first thing that will solve, quench the fiery darts of the wicked. You know, I used to walk through the grocery store and just look at all the other women. I'm not looking at the other women the wrong way. You know, I was, I was looking at the other women and thinking, man, she's so pretty. She's just right. Why am I what I am? God doesn't want us to live that way. And you know, when we see God loves me, we have to realize God loves me just as much as he loves everybody else. And that's infinitely. He loves us so much. Some of you weren't here in the last seminar when we talked about the depth of the love of God for us. Um, but I want to talk to you now about how to internalize that. How do you make the love of God really relevant to what you're suffering in your daily life? It's great to hear about the love of God, but when you're a drowning man, you need something that floats, right? You don't need a Bible. Self-esteem, the self-esteem movement that we face today in America and all around the world is really the foundation for people stepping on one another to get to higher ground. At least I am more beautiful or better at or more popular than or I dress better than. Whatever it is, we compare ourselves among ourselves. And the Bible says comparing themselves among themselves is not wise. We're going to talk about that too. Um, the self-esteem movement is the foundation for things like racism. If I can step on an entire race of people and say, I am so much better, at least I'm not. You know what I mean? In America, we have this whole anti-Mexican movement among some people. And they're like, oh, the Mexican, whatever. You know, this is so wrong. How can, you, how can you measure someone else's worth based on the color of their skin or the place that they were born? Every one of us is of infinite worth in the light of the cross. This is the foundation of evangelism, the foundation of living for Jesus. The self-esteem gospel, if I can summarize it this way, is really a false gospel that declares that you can find true love, satisfaction, and meaning in life while self is on the throne of your heart. It is a lie. This is an atheistic mindset that we don't really need a God who created us in his image. We can keep crawling higher and higher by uh, evolving into greater, right? And every teenager seems to suddenly discover, wow, I've evolved higher than my parents. They, they don't seem to know nearly as much as I do about life, right? And, and then eventually we find out, well, maybe not. But we like, to, we like to measure ourselves and say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so who does this. This foundation of self-esteem, measuring ourselves by what we do 
or by what other people think of us or by what we feel about ourselves is a totally sandy foundation. It goes up and down with the tide. You can't trust it. But the foundation that God has ordained for us is an understanding of his love for us, his infinite love for us based on creation and redemption. In the last seminar, we talked about this, how creation and redemption prove our worth because we were created in the image of the infinite God. We're created in the image of the one who loves, who lives in relationship. God is love. What is love? Love is the highest thing in relationship. People live in relationships, right? The law of God is all about relationships. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We are relational beings. So I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't be impacted. When somebody says something hurtful to us, yes, it hurts. Didn't Jesus get hurt when people said hurtful things to him too? Yes, it's okay to hurt. The dangerous thing that we do often is we lie to ourselves. We say, it doesn't hurt, I'm fine. Then we medicate ourselves, turn on the music, watch a movie, go eat, call a friend. We find something to kill the pain. Pain is not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. God wants us to recognize, yes, it's okay. Sometimes I'm just going to hurt a lot. But it's better to hurt than to stop loving. So God has given us a, m a method of looking at life. And there are two basically fundamentally polar opposites in this world, the self-directed life and the Christ-directed life. You can see on these um, diagrams, one of them, there's the throne of the heart with self sitting on it, and the other one, the throne of the heart with Christ sitting on it. In the self-directed life, self is on the throne. The interests are directed by self, resulting in discord and frustration, and Christ is outside the life. And as much as we want to have Christ on the throne of our hearts, most of us battle to keep him there right? We get up in the morning and say, all right, God, I'm going to spend time with you as soon as I check Facebook, <laughs> right? And then, you know, the day just kind of unravels from there. The Christ-directed life is totally different. You notice that things are actually um, symmetrical. Thank you. The Christ is on the throne. Self is yielding to Christ, and the interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God's plan. Now, in the self-directed life, how would you handle a relationship with someone else? When somebody else comes along and they look attractive and self is on the throne of the heart, we kind of say, wow, you know, this is pretty nice. Maybe you walk into a party and you evaluate all the singles there, you know, okay, those three seem to be the most attractive out of the bunch. In the self-directed life, you kind of flirt with those three and see which one seems to respond the most and then settle down to hanging out with that one for the rest of the evening, right? Or maybe if they don't seem to work out so well, that's all right. There were still number two and three, right? The self-directed life is chaotic because then, you know, you pick who you're going to go to your Vespers Friday night party, I mean, your Vespers date with, and then, of course, things just don't seem to work out quite the best, but, you know, you've already gone out, and then you go out a few more times, and then you start realizing, well, they're not as spiritual as I thought, but I really like them. When self is on the throne, you start going, well, God says, but I feel. And which one's more important when self is on the throne? I feel. Because you need whatever it is that you can get. Self-directed life is chaotic. And it ends up always, no matter how good it looks at the beginning. I remember how, you know, I'd start dating somebody. It seemed so great. I felt wonderful. He was so nice to me. Everything was great. And then just things would start falling apart. And I remember when I, I'd been dating somebody for a few months, and one day... He yelled at me about something. I don't remember what it was now, but I remember standing there as he stomped away from me. He just yelled at me, and I was in shock. Not that he had yelled at me, but that he had yelled at me and that I was still interested in a relationship with him. I just looked at myself and thought, who are you? Did you not spend your whole life saying, I will never, never get into a relationship where someone will yell at me or hit me or abuse me? And here I am. I still want him. What is wrong with me? When self is on the throne of the heart, things may be chaotic, but you've got to pull it together by at least trying to keep self on the throne. If you'll just make me feel good. And many people, they get married that way. Because, like it or not, the main reason that they're getting married most of the time is because they think they'll be happier married than they were single, right? 
And statistics show that's really not the case. In fact, there was this great poll that I read about on CNN.com a few years ago where they, they studied a whole group of people before they got married and evaluated how happy they were. So the people marked you know, how happy they were on their scale. And then they all got married and they, they tracked them all the way through this process and found they were still about as happy after they got married as they were before they got married. The people who were happy before they got married you know, were about just as happy. They settled into the same level of happiness after they got married. People who weren't happy before they got married, they had this little blip of happiness around the, the wedding, and then they settled into being just about as happy as they were before they got married. But people get married thinking, wow, now I'll be happy. Now I'll arrive. Now someone will love me and make me fulfilled and give me all the things that I wanted. And then they find themselves trapped with this person who doesn't make them feel good. And now they can't go out there and shop for a better one. This is terrible. Can't break up. It's messy. And before you know, there are kids and, and it just gets more complicated. You're, you're losing sleep. There's not enough money. You know, when you hear about marriage, it's a wonder that anybody ever gets married these days. You hear about how terrible it is. <laughs> they say it's like a revolving door. Those who are on the inside are trying to get out and those on the outside are trying to get in. <laughs> It doesn't really solve anything because the problem is most people are still living the self-directed life. They got into this marriage because they thought it would make them happier. And what happens when the other person doesn't make you happier? You start going, if only you would, then I would be happy. It's a self-directed life and the solution is to become Christ-directed. When Christ is on the throne of your heart, happiness is no longer your goal. You see, if happiness is your goal in life, You'll never be happy. It's like I, when I was a kid, we used to try to fish for minnows in the stream. I'd try grabbing them with my hands. You know, that's, that's pretty futile if you've ever tried chasing minnows. And there was one way I could try to get them. You know, if I tried with a cup and goosh, try to get them, I hardly ever caught anything. But if I put the cup down in the water, sometimes a little minnow would swim in, right? Happiness can be like that. If you spend your life chasing happiness, looking for anything you can to try to make you happy, you'll never find happiness that way, I guarantee it. Because that's a self-directed life, trying to find happiness. But if your goal in life is holiness, then whatever anything happens to you that doesn't make you happy, it can still make you holy. Look at Joseph's life. Was it God's will for Joseph to be hauled away as a slave? It was his brother's sinful choice. But because Joseph chose to follow God, God was able to use it to bring holiness in him. And as he became a holier person, don't you think he became happier? Certainly made him more content. We have very little control over many things in our lives. A drunk driver can drive across the, the line and maim you for life in a moment. You don't have any control of that. We have this illusion of control in our culture, but it's really an illusion. You can get sick, you have no idea what made you get sick, or when you're going to get well. You can do your best, but sometimes things just don't work out. We think we can be in control because we can turn the thermostat up or down. Therefore, in everything else in life, surely I can do that too, right? And then we get frustrated when we can't control our level of happiness, when our goal is happiness. <clears throat> but if your goal is holiness, you can become a holy person no matter what's happening to me. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I am married to the most wonderful man in the entire world. <laughs> hate to break it to all of you who aren't married to him. But um, even in our idyllic existence, occasionally little uh, problems come up. One, one of those problems happened not long ago when uh, my husband was really busy and I, I got up in the morning and the house was just a disaster. It looked terrible. Everything was just like blown up. The kitchen was a disaster. The, the dishwasher was full of clean dishes and the sink was full of dirty dishes and the counters were full of dirty dishes and the kitchen was, I mean, the, the Dining room table was covered with cereal bowls and the kids were a mess and, um, and he was racing out the door to go to work. So I said, bye honey. And as he left, I assessed the situation and said, all right, I can do this. I have lots of energy today. I'm just going to start working on it. I'll get the kitchen clean and then I can spend some time with God. Get the kids dressed, you know. So I started working on all these things that I needed to do and somehow as I was working around getting everything done, I took a load of something out to the garage and I looked around and thought, the garage, this place is a mess. I don't know what I was smoking that morning. <laughs> I, I, I said, wow, I could clean this place. I remember Alan was just saying the other day, he really, really wanted to get the garage clean. This is it. 
I'm going to clean the garage. So I started organize, sweep, get rid of junk, throw things you know, out. I was, I was so excited. I had this whole stack of stuff to take over to the Goodwill, and I had all these things. Everything was looking good in the garage. Of course, the kids were going crazy, but I had to keep going back in, in and out. For those who don't know, I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. Uh, yeah, the house was not cleaning itself. Um, but I was going back and forth, getting the garage all cleaned, coming back in. Then I was like, oh no, it's already 11.30, I gotta get lunch going. So I started making lunch, I thought up something, I thought, oh, he'll really like this. And he told me he was gonna be home at 12.30 for lunch. So I, I got a steaming meal all on the table at 12.30. Wow, I'm gonna have a happy husband. And he still wasn't home. So at 12.35, I started working on the kitchen. I thought, well, maybe I can get all these dishes put away and get all the dirty ones into the dishwasher before he gets here. Wouldn't that be great? So I worked and worked and worked. By one o'clock, the kitchen was looking a whole lot better and he still wasn't there. Well, that's okay. Fed the kids and I kept working on the kitchen, got all those sticky counters cleaned and started organizing the, the messy spots and everything's getting together. Put the boys down for a nap. 1.30, he still wasn't there. 1.40, it takes my husband two minutes to drive home from work. So um, yeah, there wasn't an excuse there. I figured he was busy, so I kept waiting, kept cleaning, 1.45, and you know, he still wasn't there. What was I gonna do? 1.50, he comes walking through the door, and he's on his cell phone. I'm not even joking. He pulls in the, the car into the garage, and I hear him as he opens the door on his phone, talking to his boss. Yeah, Greg, do we still have that meeting at two o'clock? Okay, yeah, I'll see you there. Bye. He hangs up. I'm like, okay, that means he's leaving here in eight minutes. <laughs> so he, uh, he marches in. Hi, honey. Oh, thanks so much. Sorry I'm late. He's wolfing down this nice meal that I made them that was warm an hour and 20 minutes ago. And I, and I said, uh, hi, honey. <laughs> I cleaned the garage. I know, I know, it looked wonderful. He's shoveling food in. I cleaned the kitchen too. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I noticed when I ran through there. Wonderful. He uh, stands up. It's a uh, 156. He stands up. He looks at me. I says, um, was there something you needed? I said, sit down. <laughs> Oh, he sat down. <laughs> He's a wise man. <laughs> How was your morning, honey? I cleaned the garage. Cleaned the kitchen. He said, wow, okay, great. He looks at his watch. I said, all right, all right, go, go. He said, no, 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 I'll call and cancel being at the meeting. And I said, no, no, don't do that. I can just imagine he's going to call his boss and say, you know, sorry, I have married a wife and I uh, cannot come. <laughs> <laughs> and what's he going to think of me? Not, not your happy pastor's wife, right? So I, he says, well, what, what can I do? I said, nothing, nothing. You've got to get to your meeting. Go, 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 go brush your teeth. So now my husband is thoroughly bewildered. Poor man. You know, it's rough being married, guys. Remember this. <laughs> he goes off to brush his teeth, not sure whether I really wanted him to or did, he, did I want him to stay there and comfort me in some magical way that he doesn't know. And I sat there and prayed, okay, Lord, what went wrong? And all of a sudden, everything came into perspective. Self was no longer on the throne. Christ came onto the throne, and suddenly the scales fell off my eyes. Of course, he's stressed because he stayed home to let me sleep in this morning because the kids had me up during the night. That's why he got to the office at 9 o'clock. Instead of getting there earlier, he could have gotten things organized. So he's had this insanely stressful morning. He's working on things, trying to get everything ready for class, teaching. Then he was just about to head home, he told me. And somebody came in his office crying, needing some counseling. So he sat back down. He kept thinking, just 10 more minutes, just 15 more minutes, I'll be there. And then he realized he wasn't going to get back to the office on time to print the quizzes for the class that afternoon. So he had to print them before he left. And one thing after another had just come up, phone call. So he's, he's been stressed largely because... He took care of me this morning. That's why I had all this energy when I woke up this morning, because I slept until 9. And here he is sacrificing himself. But what was my goal? Was my goal to clean that garage for him? Or was it for myself? I didn't clean that garage 
to please my husband. I cleaned that garage because I wanted my husband to come home and say, wow, you're so amazing. What an incredible wife. And he says those things to me all the time. But it's never enough, you know. When your self-esteem is built on what somebody thinks of you, you never are satisfied by, wow, he's told me enough things about how wonderful I am. I don't need any more. So here I was trying to get him to give me what I wanted, affirmation. My goal was happiness, not holiness. I wasn't trying to serve. I was trying to get things out of him. You see how I can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and it's the wrong thing? When happiness is our goal, we're never going to achieve happiness. Even if he had come home and gone, wow, you're incredible. The garage looks wonderful. The kitchen looks wonderful. The kids look wonderful. You look wonderful. Everything is wonderful. Would that have satisfied me? Never. It will never satisfy. It may make you feel better for a little while, but it'll never satisfy. It's only when Christ is on the throne of our hearts. Here I was. I'd never spent any time with God that morning because I kept trying to achieve things. If I can just make myself feel good by cleaning the whole house, if I can just get everything done, then I'll feel good about myself. This is not the solution. Our goal must be holiness. Right away I went to my husband and I said, I'm so sorry, honey. I explained to him what was wrong. I asked for his forgiveness. He hugged me, kissed me, forgave me. It was wonderful. Everything was great between us. He sailed off only one minute late for his meeting. You see, the Lord can very quickly fix a very complicated situation. We could have gotten into a cycle, been angry and argumentative and distanced and alienated from each other for days. I know people who who spend months angry at each other for situations about as big as that. Because when self is on the throne of our hearts, we'll never be satisfied. And when we go into a marriage or any other relationship with self on the throne of our hearts, we're always looking for, if only you will do this, then I'll be happy. When happiness is our goal, self is on the throne of our hearts. When holiness is our goal, nothing that anybody does to us can mess us up. If I clean the garage for the purpose of becoming like Jesus, whether or not my husband does anything to make me feel good about myself, I'm going to build a closer walk with God. I'm going to draw closer to him. You see, the problem is they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We often look to other people or to our own feelings to measure ourselves. Believing the self-esteem gospel leads us to pursue happiness instead of holiness as the goal of our lives. We seek happiness because self is on the throne of our hearts. It's very simple, isn't it? When your goal is to feel better, you will never feel better. If your goal is to become like Christ, he will satisfy the longings of your heart. And along the way, you may not find what some people would call happiness, but you'll find a deep sense of contentment in knowing that I'm in the center of God's will. Now, the goal of change from the inside out is neither conformity to Christian standards nor increasing levels of happiness. Both conformity and happiness must develop as byproducts of maturity. In other words, becoming like Christ. As we are changed into his image, which is the goal of life, right? As we are changed into the image of Christ, holiness becomes more and more a part of us. And along the way, happiness grows too. This is from the book Inside Out by Larry Crabb, page 68. If happiness is your goal, it will always be out of reach. You're like that you know, donkey with the carrot on the stick ahead of you. You look at Hollywood. It's just a, a bigger example of what we will never be able to hope to have as far as resources and beautiful people around us making us, telling us how great we are. We'll never achieve what these Hollywood stars have. But are they happy? They're some of the most miserable people in the world. If holiness is your goal, you may achieve both holiness and happiness. Worldly self-esteem leads to idolatry. When you think that you have to have things in order to make you happy, those things will become your idols. Some people, it's entertainment. You know, when they don't feel good, they pop in a DVD. And, you know, it doesn't matter what it is you're watching. If you're escaping from things instead of dealing with them biblically, it's never going to satisfy you. Some people go to food or to sex or to competition to control, as the, the relationship that I was talking about in the last presentation, to virtuosity. Have you ever known people who feel really good about themselves because everyone goes, wow, you know your Bible so well? You know, when they're spiritual leaders, they can't admit that if they're ever going through a struggle or difficulty because they are somebody and everyone looks up to them. 
and idolatrous relationships. You know, codependency, just another word for the old-fashioned idolatry. Whenever people want to break up and they can't, to me that's almost always an obvious indication. Look, there's an idolatrous relationship going on here. People come to me and say, well, I think, about, I think maybe we should break up. I could save them the next hour and say, yeah, you should. <laughs> but the problem is, you know, we've been together for so long, and we got together in these wonderful circumstances, and it felt so great. But now he really hates my mom, and she hates him, and it's so complicated, but I just, you know. And, and some people, they stay together for years like this. You know, they don't get married, or sometimes they do get married, and those are the really tragic ones, because then they come to me sobbing about how devastated their marriages and how it's wrecking their children's lives and I'm thinking and your parents marriages wrecked your life too didn't they and very often that's the case because their parents were looking for happiness instead of holiness they didn't find it in their marriage and then they start demanding of their kids if you would just do what I want then I would be happy idolatry can take all kinds of different forms but it's always evil when our sense of worth is not rooted in God's love for us, we compulsively seek to prove our worth or escape from our feelings in something outside of Christ. You know, I had a girl come to me one time and say, you know, I just really, I just really want a boyfriend. Would you pray that God would give me a boyfriend? I said, well, that's an interesting goal. But, um, you know, let's talk about the deeper issues going on. I, I talked to her about how she needed to have a relationship with God that makes her satisfied in her inmost soul, even if she doesn't have a boyfriend. Yeah, that would be nice, but would you be willing to pray that I'll have a boyfriend soon? Well, no. <laughs> because if you get into a relationship with a boyfriend like that, you can guarantee it will be idolatrous. Christ is not on the throne of your heart. And therefore, you're immediately going to go into a manipulative mentality. How can I make this person make me happy? And whenever you have that mentality, your relationship is headed for destruction. Even if it's a great person. Even if God led you together in the beginning. Look at my relationship with my husband. The Lord led us together. He's a godly man. I love being married to him. But any time that self gets on the throne of my heart, our marriage starts getting to be a mess. And it's only when I go, wait... Christ needs to be on the throne of my heart. I'm sorry. Help me to seek to minister instead of seeking to get you to minister to me. Ah, now that's the secret to a happy marriage. If people go into it, their goal is, I just want to have a happy marriage. Well, you're not going to get it. But if you want to make yourself into a holy person by God's grace, ah, now there's the secret to a happy marriage. The idols have to crumble. This is something really important. When a person comes to me and says, you know, God really led us together, but then things started falling apart when we got too physically involved. Well, whenever those things happen, the idols have to crumble because whenever self gets on the throne of the heart, the Lord has to allow the things that seem to satisfy us to fall apart. It's the only way he can draw our hearts back to him, right? It's not cruel of God to say, all right, you didn't let me be on the throne of your heart. Now I'm going to blast whatever you put there instead. No, that's not the way he is. God doesn't want to do that to us. He doesn't want to hurt us. God's goal is always to minister to our hearts, to treat us the way that we need to be treated. God wants to create in us his image. Self-reliance is the sin of this age. But the first thing to be learned by all who would become workers together with God is the lesson of self-distrust. Then they are prepared to have imparted to them the character of Christ. You know, here's what I see very often in counseling with people. It's as if they're a sponge. And that sponge is taken and immersed in a sink full of water. And yet it comes up dry time after time. And they go, I know, I know I need to have more time with God. I need to build a relationship with him but it's not satisfying me. That sponge is going into the water and coming up dry every time because it's sealed inside a Ziploc bag. And you, you immerse the sponge of your thirst into this, this water. It's supposed to satisfy, but you come up thirsty again. Why is that? Why does that happen? I'm gonna be talking about that this afternoon. What is it that makes us plunge ourselves into the love of God, and yet come out feeling unloved. Often, 
It's the sins that we have committed or the sins that others have committed against us. But this sin of self-reliance is a big one, maybe even the fundamental sin that separates us from Christ. Because what about if I feel I'm so sinful, I've messed up so badly? Haven't you ever, I know I have, knelt down and prayed, God, please forgive me for what I just did. Forgive me for this horrible mistake that I made. You pray, you agonize, and you stand up, but you still feel guilty. Have you ever felt that? Do you know the root of that is the sin of self-reliance? We think, you know, I'm actually able to save myself by my own works. Isn't that the foundation of heathenism? You can save yourself by your own works or you can be saved in your sins. These are the two foundations of heathenism. And many people, they pray, they say, God, forgive me for this thing that I just did, but they don't realize the root sin that they haven't yet confessed. They've confessed the fruit sin. Lord, I fell into sexual addiction. I fell into this. I did these things that I knew that you didn't want me to do. I watched these movies or I read these books or whatever it is. And they confess that sin and then they stand up and they still feel guilty. It's because they haven't dealt with the root issue, that self-reliance that led them to say, I know I need to go to God, but I'm going to go to this instead. I'm going to find a way to satisfy myself. How do we get to the root of that? Often the problem is that rooted in our childhood, and this is something I'm going to talk about this afternoon, rooted in our childhood are impressions of God that are unbiblical. You know, if you just do everything right, then I can love you. Maybe our parents gave us that message, maybe by saying it, maybe by other ways. Maybe we just felt, unless you do everything right, you aren't going to be loved. And then we come to God, and what do you know? He says to us, unless you do everything right, I'm not going to love you or forgive you. This is not God. This is not the God of the Bible. But when we measure, what do my feelings say about what God is versus what does the Bible say what God is? We believe our feelings instead of the word of God. How do you overcome that? It's by letting the Bible strike at the root of those issues. When the Bible is able to strike at the root of those issues, then the fruits come out in your life. Wow, God loves me. When I was doing that horrible thing in total rebellion against him, he loved me. He loved me with this everlasting love. And then we're humbled. We go, wow, he loved me? He loves me now while I am such a mess? And it gives us hope. If he sees so much value in me at the lowest point of my life, when I am not who I need to be, when I've rebelled against him, maybe there is hope for me. Maybe he can recreate his image in me. You see, God doesn't allow us to go through pain because he's mad at us. When the idols crumble in our lives, it's because God wants us to bring us back to himself. He wants to nurture in us that sense that he loves us with an everlasting love. You look at the story of Moses. When Moses had high self-esteem and consequent self-reliance, God could not use him, could he? But Moses' attitude changed as he discovered that he was nothing special. And when you realize you are nothing special in relation to other people, there's nothing that makes you more valuable than everybody else around you, then God can use you because suddenly you realize, I am of infinite worth, just like everybody else. In the image of God, he created us. Why did God send Adam and Eve out of Eden? Was it because he was mad at them? Does God take away good things because he's mad at us? No, it was because they couldn't learn the lessons that they needed to learn of reliance on him anymore in a perfect environment. They had to have suffering. They had to have pain. They had to hurt. They had to work. They had to do things that didn't feel good anymore because that was the only way they could learn to be transformed into the image of God again. When he started out, he created them perfect. He created them in his image, and it was his will that they would continue reflecting his image throughout eternity. More and more, they would be changed into his image. They would learn to love in newer and deeper ways constantly throughout all of eternity. But then they fell. They said, nope, we're going to try a different way, rebellion. And then God said, no problem. I can still change you into my image. Now I'll give my son to die for you so that I can change you into my image. I'll send you out into the world to suffer. He doesn't want to see us suffer. When I see my children running down a hill that's paved and I know, okay, he's going to fall any minute now, and scrub his face into that pavement. Do I want to let him go do that? 
No. Oh, everything in me doesn't want to allow him to do that. God doesn't want to see us hurt. Can you imagine seeing what this whole blood-soaked world all at one time does to the heart of God? Suffering is not his plan, but it is the only way that he can recreate his image in us. When we see what sin is like and we can choose between that and being recreated in the image of God, wow, now we understand the purpose in telling us the story of creation and redemption because now we understand the love of God for a, a world that did not love him. Now we are transformed. When God can use someone like me, it helps me to feel, wow, he can use any other person around me. Moses, when Moses felt like, you know, I'm the top of the heap. I'm the best of all the Hebrews. I'm the best of all the Egyptians. God could do nothing with him. When Gideon, on the other hand, was called by God, Gideon said, Oh, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In Judges 6.15. See, Gideon wasn't full of self-esteem. He thought, Me? You can't use somebody like me. God wants us to build our sense of worth on his love for us, his promises. And when you do, when you do actually do that, internalize the word of God, like I was telling you earlier. Make a list of the lies the devil is telling you. Maybe he's telling you that you'll be loved when you do everything right. Maybe he's telling you God is up there in heaven sitting on his throne going, all right, when are you going to get it together? Because I'm just about through with you. These are lies. Look to the word of God instead of to what you feel or what you've been told about the character of God growing up. I guarantee you, as you internalize these principles of God, the promises of God, those addictions, the, the things, the cravings that you had for things that seem like they'll satisfy will go away. You know, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 talks about the broken cisterns that we go to. I'm going to talk about that more this afternoon. The broken cisterns that we go to instead of Christ. My people have committed two evils, it says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When, when God sees his people crawling through the desert, dying of thirst, he wants to quench our thirst, but he can't if we push him away and say, no, I've got my own drinking fountain right here. Right here in the desert, I just dug down a little bit. I've got found something to drink. I know it's kind of muddy, it's kind of yucky, it's kind of salty water. It makes me still thirsty, but that's okay. I don't need your fountain of living water. I can take care of myself. Whether it's relationships, food, sex, entertainment, anything that you go to, the cisterns are always broken. They, they may quench your thirst for a little while, but they leave you thirstier. It's an anesthetic. But when you've got brain cancer, you don't just need an anesthetic. You need surgery. You need something to deal with it. The more you allow that to keep growing, when you allow the cancer of sin to keep growing in your heart, and you say, it's okay, I'll go to God soon, as soon as I'm done with this. When you do that, it grows. The cancer of sin grows in your mind until eventually no anesthetic can kill the pain. And the devil will tempt you to do things that you never thought you could even be tempted to do. Or the... the whole problem will seem so overwhelming, you'll feel so worthless, so unlovable that even God couldn't love somebody like me. Look at this huge mess I've made of my life. God can still do something great, but he requires, he requires that we lose that sense of pride, that self-esteem that says, I've actually got it together. Yeah, yeah, praise the Lord. Ah, oh, it's such a blessing. Wonderful. Everything's, you know, painted on the outside like a Pharisee when inside are dead men's bones. We're rotting inside. And yet we're shining on the outside. Yeah, yeah, amen. What a wonderful blessing that was. You know, God doesn't want us to fake it. He wants to clean out what's going on inside of us so that he can make us like him. Gideon was afraid. And sometimes we'll be afraid to confront those deep, scary issues in our lives. Sometimes that, that fear, that raw fear of what is God going to do put me through if I tell him, okay, let's go through it. Let's go talk about my childhood. Let's talk about what has happened in my life, why I feel what I feel, why I'm hurting the way I'm hurting. It's scary sometimes. I know for me as a victim of sexual abuse, it wasn't something I wanted to think about or talk about or ever dwell on. It was over. That's all in the past. I'm just going to go forward rejoicing in the Lord. But there were things still eating away at me because I was still 
not healed by the power of God. I needed to let him go into the deep places of my life and cure those sinful attitudes. You see, sometimes our sinful attitudes come from what, you know, they're fruits of root sins. You know, the things that I feel a craving to do. When I go to the refrigerator and I say, all right, cheesecake. Cheesecake is the solution to all my problems. I can go back to the Lord later on and say, I'm sorry, I just ate half a cheesecake. I know it was wrong of me. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry I ate the other half too. <laughs> but this is, not, this is not the root sin, right? I can go to the Lord and I can pray about that and I can stand up and say, praise the Lord, I'm healed of that cheesecake. Now let me go exercise. But I haven't dealt with the root sin. I haven't dealt with what drove me to the refrigerator, have I? And if I don't deal with that... I may not go back to the cheesecake. I can decide, all right, I'm not going to buy a cheesecake ever again, but I'm going to go to a relationship. Or I'm going to go to some... It doesn't matter. I'm going to go to some idol somewhere because any time that I'm not allowing God into the deep places of my heart, it comes out in ugly ways in my life. Those sins of turning to other things instead of to God will come out. They will because the idols must crumble. God has to bring us to understanding What's wrong? The brokenness in our hearts. Now, don't, I don't want you to think that, well, if you just deal with it all, it'll all be over. You'll never have to deal with anything again. But it's true. I don't struggle with depression anymore. I told you at the beginning of the last seminar, you know, I battled with depression all my life, it seemed like. I was always depressed. I was always struggling. There were times I remember for, I don't know, a year or two of my life, certainly at least one year of my life at one point, I cried myself to sleep almost every night. Then there was another year at a different point in my life I cried myself to sleep almost every night. But nobody around me knew it, only my sister, because in one case she was sleeping in the room above me and she could hear me sobbing my guts out every night. So every now and then she'd ask me, are you doing okay? Yeah, all good, got it under control. And then later on she was my roommate in academy and again she heard me sobbing myself to sleep every night. What's wrong, Nicole? Can I help? No, probably not. But God had to deal with the deep things that were hurting me, that were tearing me apart from the inside out. And once I started getting into that, it was kind of like, you know, thinking there's this dead body locked into a closet. I, I think I've got it airtight, but it never was. There was always something that would come back out to bite me, you know, that the smell coming back out. I remember feeling at that point in my life that my life was like a closet. Or like a, it was like a house that was beautiful and sunny in the house upstairs, you know. Everything's nice and pretty. But down in the basement, there was, there was this darkness, this cold, dark basement. And there was no door, just a curtain between the, that cold, dark basement and the sunny part of my life. And any time, the breeze could push that curtain aside and this coldness would come in from the basement and wreck this happiness idyllic life that I had. I could never control that coming back into my life. The past was just always coming back to haunt me, to wreck my present. And I just was terrified, you know. I can't ever get married. I can't ever live a life, you know, that's free, that's really away from all this stuff because the fears, the things that didn't make any sense, you know. For a while I was so afraid I wouldn't walk into a grocery store aisle if there was a man in it, an unfamiliar man, because I just, I had this phobia about strange men. If a guy walked behind me, I would have a panic attack. But nobody knew. I didn't tell anyone because that would make me seem like I was crazy. Plus, maybe I was crazy, and just talking about it made it seem like that would be more likely. I was dealing with addictions, with, with phobias, with things that were terrifying to me and that I couldn't control. And so I just pushed them down, swallow it. Maybe I can keep this curtain from blowing aside again, but it never would. I needed to give those areas of my life to God, to go with Him into that darkness. And sometimes we may feel like, wow, I just can't go into the darkness, even with God. But I want to promise you that journey is a beautiful journey because you start realizing that the precious presence of the love of God that you need like you never have before. Um, for me, that meant being able to except that I needed to talk with God about the fears that I was facing, about the things that were bothering me, about my need for somebody to love me, somebody to be there for me all the time, my need for a deep friendship. So I'd look for somebody to be a friend to me, but I needed them. I was too clingy. I needed a best friend, somebody to understand me, somebody to always be there. 
And the idols would crumble time after time because I was making this person the center of my life. I needed to make God the center of my life. When God is the center of your life, when he is on the throne of your heart, I can't promise everything is going to go beautifully instantly. Bang, you know. Often in evangelism, we go out and we preach to people, we share the gospel with them, they cry, they pray, they experience miracles, they give their lives to Christ, they get baptized, and they expect, wow, tomorrow everything is going to go away. I'm going to be a new person. But you know, it doesn't take long for things to come back. Sinful attitudes that we have. If only someone will love me, then I'll be happy. If only I can do everything right, then I'll be worth something. Every person has a craving to be loved and to be worthwhile, to be valued. God has put that into us. But he wants us to seek to find the solutions to those things in his word. That's how spending time with God can become real. As you spend your time with God, you'll find in him what you've never been able to find in someone else. The secret of true self-worth is found in 1 Peter 5, 5. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride is thinking, you know, I'm actually something special because of who I am, because of something under the sun. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. When we realize, wow, God loves me, sinful, messed up person that I am. He loves me infinitely. Now that's the secret to discovering a relationship with God. And if we don't feel humble yet, James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. God has promised. His biddings are enablings. When God says, humble yourself, that means he's going to guide you through that journey. It's scary to confront what you're like down inside. It's scary to feel like, whoa, can I really? you know, face all of these things that, that haunt me, the things that hit you when you're lying in bed alone at night, and it's dark, and you're tired, and you're thinking, hmm, what's bothering me? These are the things God wants you to confront. He wants to set you free. Sometimes we wrestle and wrestle against addictions, going, wow, Lord, you've got to help me overcome this addiction to eating, this or that, whatever it is that's, that's my addiction. You've got to Help me overcome my addiction to lust. But we don't realize that we're using those things to escape from our need for Christ. When Christ satisfies the thirst in our hearts, then we no longer have this overwhelming craving for those other things. Now, you know, people can say, yeah, yeah, but this is the way guys are. No, it's actually not. Girls have a craving, too, for relationships. It's just a little different. God created us to crave intimacy. There's nothing evil about that. For me, I lived out my craving for intimacy by fantasizing. I made up stories. I was going to be a novelist. One of my best friends and I, we were going to be novelists together, put our names together, and we were going to write novels under the name Danica. Wow. It was great. We had our whole lives planned out at 14. Yeah. And I would escape for hours into fantasizing about how wonderful it would be now, I remember one time I found a bunch of novels that my older sisters had stashed under my bed. Wow, I was feasting on them. This was great. I'd stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning. But I felt so guilty afterwards, you know. It's like, oh, I've been reading all this garbage. Oh, Lord, I really shouldn't be doing it. I know. I'd stuff them all back under the bed. <laughs> That's going to help. One day I pulled them all out. I was just awash in guilt. I pulled them all out and laid them on my bedroom floor thinking, what should I do? I know I need to get rid of these, but... I just can't. Then my younger sister opened the door and found me with all these novels on the floor. Providence. Little sisters are great. <laughs> I said, look at all the stuff I found under the bed. What should we do? She says, wow, let's burn it. So we did. And that was the end of that. <laughs> but that didn't take care of the addiction, did it? It only took care of that particular manifestation of it. You see, God wanted to satisfy the inner hunger within me, that longing I had, that craving for an intimate relationship with someone. And once I had that intimate relationship with God, I found I no longer had that craving for um, unholy intimacy with someone else, that God could satisfy my soul so deeply that I didn't need that anymore. I don't mean that the temptation wasn't there. When I walk through the grocery store and I see a whole rack of romance novels, all of them with these women with their scanty dresses falling off their shoulders like this on some guy. 
you know, I'd look at it and, hmm, yeah, no, not going to do that. It was a temptation, but it wasn't a consuming blaze like it had been before. Now I had Christ. Now he was satisfying within me. You know, guys may struggle more with lust than girls do sometimes, and that's, that's a generalization. It's by no means true. Girls often struggle with just a different kind of lust. Instead of looking at guys' bodies, we think, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if he would just sit down and listen to me? talk to me, tell me how wonderful I am, tell me how beautiful I am. Idolatry is idolatry. It doesn't matter. We may be prone to one idol or another, but God wants to set us free from everything. There's a story I read of a a girl who had been a prostitute for several years, and her dad didn't know anything about it. And one day in counseling, the girl finally got up the courage to tell the truth. With tears streaming down her face, she confessed to her parents. She said, I've been a prostitute for three years. I didn't know how to tell you. And her father, praise God, said to her, when I look at you, I don't see a prostitute. I see my little girl. It doesn't matter what mistakes we've made, the mess we may have created in our lives or that other people have created in our lives for us. It's not your fault. If your parents got divorced, bad things have happened to you, abuse, neglect, anything that's gone on in your life that was not God's will. It doesn't matter why those things happened. God can use them as tools to bring you closer to him. Isn't that true? You know, look at this, the whole story of redemption. God didn't mean for Adam to sin. He told them not to sin. He warned them, the wages of sin will be death. Don't do it. Don't do it. They did it anyway. And he said, that's okay. I can still take care of this problem. And not only in spite of sin, but actually because of sin, this universe will understand the love of God in a way they could not have if sin had not happened. If we had not sinned, and if Christ had not died for us, the universe would not have understood as deeply as they can now the depth of the love of God for a soul that does not love him. That girl may not have understood the love of her father or the love of God until she became a prostitute. I'm not recommending that you go wreck your life. You know, the, in the story of the, the prodigal son, he still lost his inheritance. He came back, his father loved him, he embraced him, they rejoiced together, he was able to be in relationship with his father again, but he lost so much. The life of sin is not a happy life. And the life of that girl as a prostitute, you can be sure was not a happy or fulfilling situation. But now, that tool in the hand of the enemy to destroy her, to tell her, your father could never love you. If your parents only knew what you were like, they would, they would throw you away. Now she understood the love of her father in a way she could not have loved, understood it before. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made, what mistakes other people have made in your life. When you give your life to Christ, it's as if Christ wrenches that, that club out of the hand of the devil that he's been using to beat you, and he gives it to you and says, here, now you go beat the devil. You know, God wouldn't have wanted me to have an abortion, and I didn't. But if I had, I might have had a ministry that someone else couldn't have. You know, as I am now, I don't have that ministry that someone else might have. When someone comes to you and says, I just, I know God can't ever forgive me, I had an abortion. And if you've had an abortion too, you say, I can understand how you feel, but God forgave me and he can forgive you. You see? It doesn't matter what's happened to you. Me being sexually abused as a child wasn't God's will. He didn't want it to happen. It was a sinful choice of a sinful man. But it doesn't matter. When I give that to Christ, he's able to use that as a club to beat the devil. And I can reach out to people and help them understand God can set you free because he set me free. And we are wounded healers, all of us, going out and sharing the gospel and how it applies to our lives in order to help other people understand how it applies to theirs. In every one of us, we can understand more deeply when we understand the depth of sin, the wickedness of our own hearts. 
we can understand in a deeper way the love that God has for us. I'm going to close with prayer. And I invite you, if you do have some kind of woundedness, some struggles that have been going on in your life and you want to know how to be able to give those to Christ, come back this afternoon. You can also listen to things on Audioverse um, and even share it with other people you know who are battling. I'm sure some of you have thought of other people you know who are going through difficult times and thought, I can share this with them. Come back this afternoon. We're going to talk about how to give those wounded parts of our hearts to Christ so that we can truly break free and live in newness of life. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, you are so gracious and we are so unworthy. We just praise you and thank you for what you were willing to do, that you love us even while we haven't loved you. Lord, teach us to behold your love so that we can come back to you and be changed into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.